Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Tuesday, December 12th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The biodiversity crisis is worse than we thought. This according to a new report in the journal iScience, which has pulled ahead of its rival publication, You Superstition. Stefano Mamola of the Laboratory for Integrative Biodiversity Research and the Finnish Museum of Natural History says... There is a paucity of fungi and unicellular life forms out there. I quote from the report, zoocentrism in biodiversity conservation is leading to unequal attention and funding for plants and fungi compared to animals, despite the fundamental ecosystem services afforded by these organisms. The report goes on to say, humanity is facing an unprecedented biodiversity crisis. Recent estimations suggest at least 1 million species risk extinction and hint at alarming number of decreasing populations. As human activities erode organismal biomass, phylogenic diversity, and ecosystem functionality, preserving biodiversity in all its forms and facets is emerging as a central imperative of our times. Here, here, I am roused to action, except when I realize, and when I tell you, that the title of the report is Biodiversity communication in the digital era through the emoji tree of life. Yes, the biodiversity they want to promote are the cartoons on your iPhones. These are scientists complaining that all the emoji are of animals and not enough of mushrooms and spores. Because everyone wants to tag their yup text to their boo with a cute drawing of a mitochondria. The authors are clearly into whatever weird mushrooms they're into, and sure, representation, yeah, and more emoji for arthropods might lead to an uptick in arthropods, although if you've ever looked at an arthropod, it probably wouldn't. The authors write overall that they've classified 112 distinct organisms, 92 of which were animals in the emoji library, Only 16 plant taxa were present, whereas fungi and unicellular life forms each consisted of a single emoji, likely Amanita muscaria and Escherichia coli, respectively. E. coli. There is an E. coli emoji. Did not know that. And look how popular E. coli got after that one, huh? As for the mushroom emoji, yes, it says Amanita muscaria. But I looked it up. It is literally the power-up mushroom from the Mario Brothers. To be fair, it does look like Amanita muscaria. I understand fans of nerdy things want their nerdiness recognized along with the cool kids. The cool kids being the eagle emoji and the gorilla emoji and the unicorn emoji, which they did count among the 92 animal taxa. But come on, fellas. Having an emoji is not the path to popularity. I mean... For years, there's been a Russian flag emoji, and Russia's not popular. There's a shower cap emoji. Shower cap sales remain stagnant. And if you really want to think about popularity, 
Consider this, there are 100,000 named species of mushrooms and an estimated three, four, five, they don't even know million unnamed species, not unnamed mushrooms, unnamed species of mushrooms. It seems they're doing pretty well even without an emoji. And they'll probably be here long after the makers and users of emoji are gone. This winter, give the gift of gist. Subscriptions don't renew, but when you go to subscribe.mikepesca.com slash gifts, you could find the right one for your friend or family member who likes to listen to the gist, but doesn't want to listen with ads. And use the promo code Belgium at checkout for 11% off. On the show today, the sludge barge and the bridge that did not sink to its level. But first, Angus Deaton won the Nobel Prize in Economics. His new book, titled Economics in America, An Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality, argues that economics is only one of the many factors in the equation of inequality here in America. We will talk about the power of a college degree, the complicated data around lifespan, and how inequality might pretty well be in the eye of the beholder, Angus Deaton, up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Angus Deaton is the winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Economics. The concept that you probably know him best for is reflected in the title of the book that he co-wrote with Anne Case, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. He's out with a new work, Economics in America, An Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality. Angus Deaton, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. The bow tie on the cover shows an American flag and then the Union Jack, but the Scottish saltier wouldn't play as well visually with the American audience. Is that why that wasn't used? That was a very clever device of my publishers. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm Scottish, but my dad was English. And um, so maybe the Union Jack is a good representation of me. There's There are many... Great chapters and inviting chapters that allow the reader to get to know you as a person. And it's very interesting seeing the world or the world of going to New Jersey in the uh, 70s through your eyes. But what are, can you put your finger on some impressions that you still maintain from your upbringing as a Scot and uh, a member of the United Kingdom that to this day, strike your, uh, when you see them in America, strike you as somewhat discordant? Well, or, or different. I, I'm not sure. I mean, some of my expectations, which I talk about in the book, that New Jersey was full of gangsters, turns out not to be true um, or not to be visibly true. 
But the thing that um, Brits think about America is the sort of land of inequality, though I wish I called it the land of inequalities because there are multiple inequalities, not just in terms of money, but in terms of race and education and position and so on. And that struck me as true then, and I think it's true now. And in fact, the opportunities here may even have gotten better, but the bottom has fallen out too. And that's what Anne and I write about in the Deaths of Despair book and in the continuing work along those lines. That, you know, for people who are not part of the educated elite, which is a large share of the population, um, their lives are not going too well. Yeah. So tell me why you think we're going to get to Deaths of Despair for sure. But why is inequality or do you think it is the best measure that reflects the health of a society. Why not focus more on just the immiseration of the lowest decile, the lowest quartile, and maybe track that over time to see how much progress has made? Wouldn't that give us, it would give us a different picture. Why do, why do you think it might not give us a better picture? Well, there's a lot we could talk about there, but um, it's important, the bottom, for sure. Um, and looking at the people who are right down at the bottom there and how they're, how they're faring. And those numbers are regularly published in the U.S. and people look at them. There's a huge amount of political controversy over them, so much political controversy that that's actually become quite hard to measure um, these days. But there are other inequalities that cut across that. And... I, I don't think anyone would want to deny that the poverty, non-poverty um, dimension is really important, or that the racial dimension is not incredibly important. I mean, the history of race shoots, um, is shot through this whole country. Um, it's from its foundation today, and those inequalities are still there, and they're incredibly important. But there are other inequalities that I think are very important today, which is this cutting across between the, you know, what has become known as the educated elite, <laughs> the people with a four-year college degree, and working Americans. And it's true that among those working Americans, there really are some people who are quite poor, but a lot of them are not. And a lot of those people feel they've been badly treated. They feel they've been condescended to. They feel they've lost power. Um, a lot of it's to do with the decline in unions, for example, which don't really exist anymore in the private sector. And, you know, you have a situation where in Washington, all the unions together spend less on lobbying than Alphabet spends on lobbying. You know, so you've had a real reallocation of power um, away from ordinary Americans. And some of those are poor, but not all of them are poor. And that dimension, which Anne and I have explored in the mortality work, but it's important in other things too. It's important in income and it's important in wages. It's important in employment. You know, the fraction of people in the labor force has been falling for many, many years among those without a BA, but not for those with a BA. So right. I'm not trying to say that is the division that's important. And I'm not trying to deny that poverty is important, That's really, or let alone that race is important. So maybe I should have called the book The Land of Inequalities with an S on the end. Right. And the, and the time period of greatest equality, the 70s, the Nixon era, was also the time of greatest union strength. And I 
probably think the ability of, for a number of reasons, including concentration of media ownership, but the ability of elites to least distort uh, the public sphere. But uh, let's move on to what you've been writing about lately, which is when you and your wife, Anne, um, wrote your book about deaths of despair, it got a lot of attention. And as I understood it, but I want you to explain what the original thesis was, that was it among white Americans, opioid use, which is captured as poisoning, but some other things were driving lifespans down? Will you tell me? Okay. So we discovered that we were not the people who discovered that lifespan was going down. That was the CDC. Right. We identified a particular group of people in midlife from 45 to 54 whose mortality rates were going up. And that was a white, non-Hispanic men and women. It's very important to have the women in there because many people accused us of saying it was just men. Um, so that was what we first found out. And when that happened, um, we looked at the education divide because there's not much else <laughs> data you can get on people's death certificates. And it turned out the big increase, the increase in um, was among people without a BA. Um, it was not happening to people with a BA. So then we did what anyone would have done, which is what's causing this. You know, what are the fastest growing mortality things? And we found three things, which were opioids, which was the biggest one, um, alcoholic liver disease, and suicide, all of which are self-inflicted harms. They're not like COVID or, you know, they're not like cancer. Um, they're things that sort of people do to themselves. And we thought this was a very bad sign, along with the fact that other bad things were happening to people without a BA, including there was a huge increase in pain. There was a huge decrease in people being married. There was a huge increase in parents not living with their kids because they had serial relationships in which they'd have kids and then move on to the next partner. So we just saw this as a sign of social um, you know, of social disintegration, a, a really bad sign. Just correct me, uh, in terms of putting forward the theory, am I right that in your original book, the emphasis was on the race of the people experiencing these deaths of despair, and then a couple of years later in this Brookings paper that I have in front of me, Mortality and Morbidity in the 21st Century, it was, I guess you got, you bored down and you found out that that wasn't quite the best description. It was more the non-BA non holding, non-college educated, not just the white people. That's right. But that we had made some errors in the original paper, but that was not one of them. I mean, we wrote the original paper in the summer of 2013. And in the summer of 2013, there were no deaths of despair. There was no increase in deaths of despair in the black and Hispanic communities. So those only picked up a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. So the Brookings paper you're looking at, that was, you know, we said, look, what's happened now? Now, we got fairly criticized for some things, but that's not a fair criticism because, you know, it's sort of like saying, look, <laughs> you guys didn't predict that COVID was going to happen. Well, of course we didn't predict it because it hadn't happened yet. And what seems to have happened there right. is that, you know, African-Americans are pretty untrusting of the healthcare system. There's also a literature, which not everyone accepts, that doctors don't treat, don't treat black people as seriously as they treat white pain. 
And so for one or two of those reasons or other reasons, African-Americans were not prescribed heavy-duty opioids like OxyContin in a way that they were pouring into the white community. When the docs pulled back and you know you went to your pain clinic and your doc said, I don't think you should be taking this anymore, then it moved into illegal drugs like heroin and eventually fentanyl. And those illegal drugs had no trouble penetrating into the African-American Hispanic communities. Yes, th- I mean, that is true, but... From everything I've been reading, especially in the last decade, what happened with OxyContin and the Sackler family and prescription is horrible and has some small bearing on the fentanyl and overdose picture, but it is just that. It's a very small bearing, especially now. I don't think I, well, depends how you define small bearing, but I think most people who've written on this, and this has not been our main focus, but it's important focus, believe that the Sanklers and others ignited this crisis, which then, you know, spread like wildfire into an illegal drug crisis. What is it about BAs? Is that they're a proxy for other things or that a BA actually delivers material benefits for the person that acts as a sort of life armor? <laughs> I have a hard time with the, the orbit because mm-hmm. I, part of it I disagree with and part of which I do agree with. I think it affects your role in society and that's more important than what you learn in college, for instance. Right, right, right. That That is true. I don't have the actual knowledge in one's brain. I didn't even consider that that might help you, but go ahead. Right. So, I mean, if you, if you read Charles Murray coming apart, for instance, much of which we don't agree with, but his documentation of the world having split into enclaves where all the educated people live together and all the non-educated, I mean, there are different worlds out there. And so that education has become a separating thing between people of high social status who live in one world and people of lower social status who live in another world. And, you know, the, the, the doctors and uh, so on who live in one, you know, didn't have to face Chinese competition for their jobs in a way that working class Americans did. And many of those communities were destroyed. You know, those mines were closed down. Um, there's a wonderful account in Kathy Eden's new book about a mining town, you know, that was a company town and the company went away. And the people had absolutely nowhere to go. And they were sort of bored out of their minds and they were a great place for drug dealers to come and work. Yeah. You do also write about, and it's very important to have accurate statistics that capture real life experience. And I think we're seeing some of that with the average American's perception of the economy. There's a gap between what the economists are telling us in terms of traditional measures Um, unemployment figures, inflation, uh, the growth of the gross domestic product, all of those, and how it is felt. Do you have any explanation for that gap? Um, Yeah, I I don't think it's what economists say. I think it's the data. (laughs) (laughs) Economists accurately uh, reflecting the data. We're not just talking about Paul Krugman or someone saying it's all fine. You know, why are these people thinking these bad things? Two things. One is, These GDP numbers, which people focus on, are averages, and they don't tell you who's getting what, right? Now, the answer to that would be, well, right now, inequality, income inequality is decreasing, and people at the bottom are doing very well, so you can't explain it that way. So the second line of thing is people are dying in droves, Mike, 
And maybe that has something to do with it. You know, the number of people who are drinking themselves to death has been, continues to skyrocket. The, the drug epidemic is not going away. Um, you know, the data take a while to come in, but people are destroying themselves. And so maybe they have a reason to destroy themselves. If it's not what Anna and I say, maybe it's something else. But, you know, people who are considering seriously doing away with themselves or drinking themselves to death, they're not going to say, oh, I think everything's fine in America. Right. But as I look at, so you tell me the opioid death rates, they're not consistently um, worse every year from the next, but the opinion of the economy seems to be the same with suicide rates, the same with suicide rates among specific populations like African-Americans. Um, but the opinion of the economy doesn't track with those things, if you want to talk about no, that. But you see, the point I, I'm trying to make, and it's a big theme in the book, is that the money isn't everything. There's lots of things that are much more important to people than money, like their communities, their wives, yeah, their yeah, husbands, yeah. their children, the schools that people go to. And, you know, you've got to take a much more holistic picture than just say, okay, GDP is going up, everything's fine, when, you know, you see these other indicators suggesting that people are in severe distress. Mm -hmm. um, the blacks, by and large, don't kill themselves. There are very low suicide rates among yeah. African-Americans and very low suicide rates among women. It's about a fifth of the suicide rates. I mean, that's always been true, and it's been true since the 19th century. Yeah. We don't understand it very well, but it's a very good example of why economics doesn't explain suicide. Right, right. And, and the methods of suicide among women are disproportionately poisoning, and men are guns. And if you look at the high suicide rates in America, it's probably because we have gigantic gun ownership as well as terrible conditions for many people that drive them to suicide. Well, that that is may be right, but yeah. you know, the suicide rates have been rising here in a way that's hard to link to rising gun ownership. That's true. Although there's also, as you know, a lot of uh, scholarship that says when states loosen their laws on gun ownership, yeah. the suicide rates do tend to follow. There's a very good example of that in China, where China used to be the only country in the world where women killed themselves at higher rates than men. And they were doing it by drinking fertilizer or eating fertilizer. And it was the incredibly bad treatment of women in rural China. And then when they all moved to the cities, or a lot of them did, that problem's gone away. Yeah. The last thing I want to ask you is, I think you're much more pessimistic than I am. It's prob I don't know why it is, but maybe it's because you are more attuned to the data. But I read a lot of these studies and there are cross currents. I'm going to say the opioid picture is a horror and a travesty. I'm going to say that uh, murder in America, you're right. It's not so gigantic. We're not El Salvador and it's not, it doesn't explain the vast, vast majority of the difference between the U.S. and France. So I'll I'll stipulate all those points, but I also do read many studies and I talk about it on the show where, say, black-white wealth inequality has gone from a 10 to 1 ratio to a 6 to 1 ratio. And I say, that's progress. It's not everything, but it's progress. And I say the same thing about childhood poverty and all these other measures. So am I looking at it wrong? Am I tricking myself? Am I not seeing the big picture? Maybe you would even say, Mike, you're not even seeing the small picture. Your statistics are cherry-picked. What do you think it is? 
Maybe your mom was nicer to you than my mom was to me. <laughs> you know, some of these things are, are just how we bring, I, I, that's a sort of serious comment. It's how we bring our mental predispositions to looking at the same data. Um, that's part of it. But let me give you another optimistic thing you didn't mention, which is if you look at black-white mortality rates, for instance, they've been converging. Um, so, did you know this? Like, you're you're smarter than I am. But did you know that in America, people of color have longer lifespans than white people? That's not true. It is because you know Hispanics are 19 percent of the. I'm talking oh, if you Hispanics. Like, yeah, Hispanics and Asians yeah, okay, have the longest great. lifespan, and they're five percent. Didn't catch the definition. Yeah, people. Of color. Hispanics have very much longer lifespans than whites do. And in fact, if you look at all these racial groups, it's true that blacks tend to be at the bottom, but whites are just above them. And the worst group for mortality in Britain is um, whites, yes. native whites. Yes. But that's part of what you're saying, too, that immigrants do live very long because they're selected before they come. It's like college people uh, live longer and they were different people before they started. But the black-white mortality gap has been decreasing. It's not converged. Um, but it's been getting better. And in fact, that was known before Anne and I started our work and people were celebrating the declining gap without noticing that part of it was due to rising <laughs> white mortality. Right. But you get the same thing in the black community you get in the white, that this big division by education. But I don't know. I, I think part of it is that the commentariat is a little bit too obsessed with economic data and not enough with other qualities of life that are really important to people. And at the end of the book, I spent a lot of time criticizing economists for abandoning philosophy. And economists, if you read Adam Smith, and even if you read Marx or Ricardo or John Stuart Mill, it, it's all about other aspects of people's lives. And we seem to have sort of lost that in economics. Angus Deaton is professor emeritus at Princeton University, co-author with his wife, Anne Case, of Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. Winner of the Nobel Prize, his latest book is Economics in America, an Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality. Professor Deaton, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. It's a real pleasure talking to you. And now the spiel. The interplay between the rails and the waterways is an intricate and magnificent thing. To behold a locomotive steaming across a trestle high in the night sky as a sturdy barge navigates its way underneath. For that moment, it is a confluence of traditions, economies, and a mastery of speed and transit that defines humanity's industry and wisdom. So yeah, in New Jersey, they built the bridge too low for the sludge barge. The North Portal Bridge, spanning the mighty Hackensack River, was built at a height of 50 feet. Quote, if they had just made it 55 feet or even 52 feet, I would have been ecstatic. That is Mike Vinnick, as quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Vinnick is the captain of the sludge barge, a barge which carries sewage that travels once a week from Bergen County. It's 49 feet high, which seems to fit under a 50-foot bridge, or maybe it did to the planners, but at high tide, the sewage will not flow through. 
See, the new bridge replaces an old bridge, which used to swing open to allow a 49-foot, 51-and-high-tide barge to get through. But it always would get stuck, forcing workers to bang rails in place with sledgehammers to properly close it as tens of thousands of New Jersey commuters waited. And slowing traffic in New Jersey has been known to result in prison sentences. Wildstein's lawyer referenced Kelly's now infamous email, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee, saying his client willingly brought this evidence and more to the U.S. Attorney's Office before a plea deal was ever offered. This one creakily, improperly swinging bridge was like a monthly Bridgegate scandal. Tens of thousands would routinely be stuck whenever the bridge, like Carlos Beltran looking at a called third strike, failed to properly swing. So New Jersey Transit and federal entities in the form of the Coast Guard and Amtrak made like Michelle Obama when they go low. And the federal government went high. But not high enough for the sludge barge, apparently. So now the plan is to truck the waste overland a 30-mile round trip from Little Ferry, New Jersey, to the Passaic Valley Sewage Commission in Newark, because that, friends, is where the magic happens. EVSC treats approximately 250 million gallons of wastewater per day, which is about a quarter of all wastewater generated in all of New Jersey. The goal of the PVSC is to protect public health and the environment by treating wastewater that is conveyed to our wastewater treatment facilities and safely discharge it to New York Harbor. That's Marcus Ely, a supervisor with the Passaic Valley Sewage Commission, which I learned a lot about today. They have an enormous task. The stakes could hardly be higher, as made clear by Marcus Johnson, title operations manager for centrifuges and thickeners. If we were to shut down this plant today, we had a total catastrophe between all industrial waste, residential waste, pretty much all the waste in five counties. Well, the plant isn't shutting down. It will be receiving shipments, however, not by sea, but by land. Because the bridge is two feet too low, now the plan is 50 trucks full of waste every day, six days a week. Like I said, 30 miles round trip. On the east side of the plant, we have the sludge train. People all over the world now, John Hamm, it's the sludge train, sludge train. Okay, so the 30 trucks of sludge that was formerly brought by barge, that does represent only a 10% increase. But for two feet of bridge, come on. It seems like some parts of the process were pretty haphazard, where other parts of this process are simultaneously state-of-the-art and funny to a six-year-old. At PVSC, we produce our own oxygen for this process. It requires continuous monitoring to ensure the balance is right for the microorganisms to be fed enough poop to clean as much wastewater as possible while remaining hungry enough to get the job done quickly. Okay, I'm going to guess at this point you maybe have been fed enough of the straight poop about the sludge train and the sludge barge, but there is a wrinkle. While the reporting in the Wall Street Journal leaves the strong impression, the strong odor that the federal agencies that were the builders of the bridge failed to do due diligence, my research indicates it may have been the county agency that brought back the barge that really stepped into it. Here's a headline from NewJersey.com, November 2021, Barges of Poop to Resume Traveling 
under the portal bridge. It says the Bergen County Utilities Authority is paying a barge company to ship sludge from its little ferry facility down the Hackensack River for the first time since 2016. Oh, now the shit's really going to hit the bridge. It turns out that the barge had been mothballed in favor of trucks. That changed in 2016 when the county decided to save money by approving a $3 million contract with SpectraServe Inc. of Kearney, New Jersey for, quote, liquid sludge barge transportation. And the reason was it would save $500,000 annually. That, according to authority spokesman Keith Furlong, who went to great lengths or at least an eighth of a mile to justify the decision. But there, by the articles, this really is a journey, a creaky journey that doesn't swing all the way. But by end of the article, the crap really seems to flow downhill back towards the federal government because it quotes a spokesman for New Jersey Transit saying, quote, the resumption of barges reinforces why this project is so critical and why New Jersey Transit and our project partners at Amtrak were right to continue advancing this project of national significance. So they knew about the barges, but they didn't even build it high enough. And now the sludge barge will be transported in the contents of your latest dump trucks. I'm going to guess no one is going to take the blame for any of this because in New Jersey, everyone thinks their shit don't stink. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The Gist senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca, native of Old Creekily Swinging Bridge, New Jersey, is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions, which regularly involves hammering miter rails in with sledgehammers. If you want to advertise on The Gist, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oopro, Thanks for listening.